kick out the jams, motherfuckers. This is Wayne Kramer from the MC5, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and Howl Studios presents... From Hollywood, California... Art of Rock with Caution Friends. Part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Network of Podcasts. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now... Let's rip off the shrink wrap and get to the show. Greetings all. You are listening to The Art of Rock with Kosh and Friends, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. My name is Kosh, and once again, I'm behind the mic at Aftermaster Studios in Hollywood. You have seen my work having designed somewhere around 2,000 album covers, man and boy. During that time, I've made many old friends in rock and roll. Artists, producers, photographers, engineers, and songwriters. You will get to hear their stories on my shows. First, just a bit of news. We are now available on Spotify, Radio.com, and, most recently, Pandora. In fact, if you search, you can find us on about 40 different distribution platforms these days. (laughs) We are growing and growing. All of us at the RNRA love telling the stories about the great moments of rock and roll. There's something for everyone. Please let us know what you like and that which you may not like so much. Just tell us what you think. And if you'd like to spread the holiday spirit, you can support us via Patreon with a monthly donation or even just make a one-time donation. All up to you, of course, and we appreciate any donations. Finally, and this is the one that matters most to us, if you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend about rock and roll archaeology. Thank you. conversation with award-winning director and my good friend Adam McKay. By laid back I mean literally laid back. We are both reclining on the couch at Aftermaster Studios. Adam McKay has a deep love of rock and roll. We are going to find out how that love is woven into the many movies and television shows that he has written, directed and produced. Here's some of them. Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, just to name a few. 
He was an adapted screenplay Oscar winner for The Big Short and has just received six Golden Globe nominations for his new movie, Vice, which was released today, Christmas Day, 2018. So now, listen to the great raconteur himself, revealing many unheard stories about film and music. We are almost live from the couch at Aftermaster Studios in Hollywood, California. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Adam McKay. Adam McKay. Do they call you McKay in Ireland or is it Mackay? Uh, it becomes Mackay. Yeah, I thought it did. Yeah. Yes, Susan said, don't say Mackay. We're, we're Scotch-Irish. Oh. So we were the dirtbags when the <laughs> Lord from Scotland moved up to Ireland. We were the poor sots who had to go with him. Oh, great. And then, of course, everyone hated us because our Lord, you know, the guy who had the land took the Irish people's land. Of course, yes. And then I think when the Troubles very first started, one of our relatives got killed and the Mackays, they had survived the potato famine, but they were like, all right, time to get out of here. And they moved to Nebraska oh. and lived in a hole in the ground <laughs> without exaggeration. See, this is stuff I don't have on my notes. So it was, <laughs> uh, There's no way anyone, I, I think there's only like three people that know that. Oh, yeah. no, but, uh, now with a bit of luck, there might be thousands. I need to know about your background and where you came from, your musical family. I mean, I remember while watching The Sunset Over the Pacific, we spent an hour or so chatting about your love and knowledge of music, particularly rock and roll, and that's why you're sitting, if you can call it sitting. <laughs> reclining. <laughs> reclining. Reclining. You know where you're reclining now. Okay. So I need to know how it all started, how you got your love for music before you got into, into the movies and how we meld music with movies. Yeah, well, I grew up in a uh, post-industrial town outside of Boston, Worcester, Massachusetts, kind of a tough town. And I had young uh, hippie-slash-hipster parents. Uh, and my dad, Fred McKay, was a bass player, singer, sometimes guitar player in a bunch of bands when I was growing up. So from the age of preschool you know, on he was constantly having rehearsals in our house. And I, one of my earliest memories when I was in preschool is of my dad and his band playing in our, our crappy apartment in Worcester, playing Squeezebox by The Who. Oh, oh my God, and yes, absolutely. they were practicing, so they were doing it over and over and over again. Mama's got a Squeezebox. Was it totally. Dad's got a Squeezebox? Yeah, and I remember right. my dad's bass line on it, you know, mm. dun, 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 you know that, that kind of rolling bass line behind yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and then from the age of pretty much fourth grade on, we would, my parents, of course, being a child of the 70s into the 80s, of course, divorced. And so when we would go see my dad, he would always have a gig going on on the weekends and we would go with him to whatever it was, bar, restaurant. And my younger sister and I would sit there and sit through like his two sets. And, uh, and you know, it was really exciting. And they would always do one song that we requested. And 
So literally growing up, there was music in our house and surrounding us. And also my mom and dad just had, you know, they were young. So they had really good taste in music. So they were always listening to Bob Dylan or Isaac Hayes. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, Okay, cool. Yeah. That was like part of our our house at that point. And uh, did you have a good sound system? Um, you know, we actually Because in those did. days, we're all building stuff, you know, like sort of speakers here and sort of... He had... God, he had these beautiful speakers, and I can't remember what brand they were, but they were way too nice for the level that we were living, for the way we were living. <laughs> and like 20 years later, I said to my dad, like, how did you afford those speakers? And he was uh, like, oh, your mom was pissed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I'm pretty sure I ate mac and cheese, instant mac and cheese, cheese. about 30, 40 nights so those speakers could be uh, brought into yeah, the house. Yeah, I mean, we, when, when I first got married, it's also just in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, the whole point was you had, a, you had a gas stove and you had your stereo. Yeah. And then a, a, a mattress. And that was it, you know. <laughs> so, that was pretty much our whole house. You're had describing a stack of, it, yeah, yeah, of very, very beautiful albums which you looked after very carefully, so they didn't, you know. So. Yeah, my dad had all the early Rolling Stones, you oh, know, back the, when they were doing the covers of the blues songs. Yes, right, only mono probably, but yes. totally barely writing their own stuff. Yeah, and uh, so my dad, I remember at a young age, around fifth grade, saying, "Oh my God, the Beatles are amazing," and my dad was like, "No, no, no." the cool people like the Rolling Stones. And I was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a big Stones fan. Uh, I, I used to go to their concerts, you know, in Reading University and wherever else, and they'd, um, Ike and Tina Turner would uh, be around there. Um, or Charlie and S. Fox would open for them. Wow. You know, um, and yeah, because uh, the Beatles were like from Liverpool, you know what I mean? Uh, it wasn't until later that I suddenly found myself working for the Fab Four that I realised that, you know, that there was the big, the big bounce between the Stones and the Beatles. Was Someone who was Lorne Michaels when I was at SNL told me that uh, that the Rolling Stones were trying to come off lower class. Oh, were yes. actually really well-educated art students and the Beatles were lower class trying to come off well, like well-educated <laughs> art students. Because <laughs> yeah, John was uh, well, an art student. But yeah, Mick, I think, uh, was from the London School of Economics. You know, and he wow. sort of had this dreadful Cockney accent, which he didn't really have. You know, That's just, funny. And Brian Jones, of course, had a very highfalutin accent, which he had to lose. Because this is the days when they were appearing, you know, for publicity shots, pissing up against gas stations. You know, stuff wow. Like this, you know, which was Andrew Lou Goldham deliberately put that out. To you know, sort of piss off the mums and dads, so the fans would buy more. The bad boys, worked, yeah, the old bad boy move in yeah, rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, still so, going on today. Now it's hip hop. Yes, yeah. I know. So it's like kind of you yeah, have left me a little bit because I'm not quite sure where it's going. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, a quick pause in the action to tell you about a new solution we are talking about here at Rock and Roll Archaeology. If you are a contact user like me, you may be interested in Simple Contacts, the most convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder anywhere and in minutes. Need to renew your prescription? Take a five-minute Simple Contact vision test online. It'll then be reviewed by a licensed doctor, and then they will ship out your new lenses. All you need is your current contacts, an internet connection, and 10 feet of space. And if you have an unexpired prescription and you just need more contacts, just upload a photo of your doctor's information and order new lenses. Simple Contacts does all the hard work for you by taking care of verifying and confirming your prescription. 
This is so convenient, fast, reliable, it's a five-star experience. All brands and lens types are available. And most importantly, Simple Contacts saves you money. Again, check out Simple Contacts and get $20 off by going to simplecontacts.com forward slash rock and roll. Or just enter code rock and roll with the letter N for rock and roll at checkout. Give it a try. Thank me later. Let's get back to the show. Oh, yeah, let's get into now. You mentioned you mentioned SNL. How did you get into start that? Because you were there for six years. You were doing three as head writer. But yeah. how did you stumble? I know you and Will Ferrell sort of came together at this point, did they not? Yeah, we were in Chicago and we were doing uh, improvisation. We started a group, the Upright Citizens Brigade, and we were also doing long-form improvisation with this kind of improv guru, this guy Del Close, who sort of invented long-form improv. Back when we were doing it, it was very hard to find. I mean, it was really only Chicago that you could find it. Now it's kind of gone everywhere. But... Uh, I remember a big part of what we did in Chicago was music. In fact, one of the ways that we started the Upright Citizens Brigade was we loved a band with Steve Albini called Big Black. And we they had a song called Kerosene. And we just thought it was the most badass song ever recorded. And we said, why don't we build a sketch show around it? We'll just play this song between the sketches. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. And that's how we started the Upright Citizens Brigade. And later, when the Upright Citizens Brigade finally got its own TV show, I had gone a different direction. I had gone to SNL. But when they finally got their own show, Matt Besser from the UCB got Steve Albini to do the theme song. So it was a nice full circle moment. So out of that scene in Chicago, which is a really unique theater and music scene, uh, I eventually made my way to Second City because it's the only improvisational theater that pays. <laughs> and by this time, I was around 24, and I was pretty broke. And so out of that, uh, Saturday Night Live comes and sees you at Second City, and I got an audition. And I knew I did not do impressions or large characters, so I, as I left the stage, I gave Lauren my scripts that I'd written because I, at that point, had started to become a decent writer, And I said, I also write. And it was the smartest move I ever made because they called me and they're like, you're going to be a writer. And so Farrell and I got hired on the same day. That's how we first met. Uh, We went into Lauren's office where he gives you the official you're hired talk. Mm -hmm. And all of us were kind of in the lobby nervously, you know, waiting our turn. And I had no idea who Will was, but we all realized we'd just gotten hired. So we went out for beers afterwards. That was the first time we met. Yeah. And that sort of, I mean, that's a partnership which exists and still today. And look at the, the, the masterpieces that you have put together. Uh, it is a very liberal use of the phrase masterpiece, but well, I, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say it's closer to the pissing on the wall, but. Uh, well, maybe, still, that's yeah. okay. Well, it wasn't a pissing on the wall contest. You guys worked sort of, you know, I was going to say hand to hand, but this is getting out of, out of control now. I, the yeah. metaphor has gone too far <laughs> at this point. Way too far. Yeah. Oh, dear. This but yeah, it, uh, it's crazy. I mean, that was 19. 1995, and uh, here we are, 2018, and still yeah. work together, still have a company together. Gary yeah, Sanchez. Well, Gary, I was going to bring. I was going to talk about Gary Sanchez because you know when I first sort of, I mean, but if funny and die. Let's get, let's sort of get this in the right order. Sort of, um, and we, I guess we have to bring in your very first piece for funny or die with Paul. Your your daughter, the landlord, the landlord, yeah. which was absolutely hilarious. I mean, my jaw dropped when I saw that. It was, uh, we shot that in 40 minutes. 
up at Will Farrell's uh, little guest house behind his house. He was having a birthday party for his uh, one of his sons. And there was a buddy of mine who was a masseuse who I knew from <laughs> Chicago who was a pretty cool guy. This guy drew, drew Ansys. And I told Drew, I said, hey, will you bring a camera by? We just want to try something. And Pearl was going through that phase in her life where, you know, kids go through this where they'll repeat anything you say to them. Yes. And uh, she was in that phase and it was freaky. She could repeat anything. Like my wife, Shira, would say things in French to her and she would repeat those. And you could say hip hop lyrics to her and she would repeat those. And uh, so we said, well, let's give this a whirl. It was a little tiny comedy website and this will be fun. Let's just give it a try. And it seemed like it was decent. And we just kind of threw it up on the site, and within like two days, it had crashed all the servers for the site <laughs> and was the fastest growing video in internet history. Yes. And uh, my wife, Shira, who, Kosh, you know very well, mm. uh, she had made me promise her I would not turn our daughter into a child star. I go, no, no, it's just a silly little video. And when the video had gotten, what, 10, 15 million hits yes, in like a day or two, yes, right. she wanted to throttle me. She was so <laughs> pissed at me. Well, Crazy. Yeah, when people should look it up. It's just called The Landlord. Everyone who's listening, haven't seen it, you've got to see it. It's hilarious. It's and still out there. Yeah, it's still out there. I think the it's said like 100 million hits or something, God, some crazy man. amount. Yeah. Good Lord, I, it, can't, well, I can't believe it. Cause it's, yeah. well, it, was, it was a pioneer because that sort of launched Funny or Die. That was it. It was that one video. It was mm. at that point there weren't like movie actors or big TV actors hadn't started doing videos on the internet. It was really kind of the first time. Mm. There was a couple um, other videos. Uh, Lannis Morris said had done kind of a funny version of My Humps. I remember that got a bunch of hits. So there were a couple that were floating around, but no one at Farrell's level, because that was kind of, he was at the peak of his fame at that point and was doing one hit movie after another. Yeah, right. And With I think, you. Uh, some of them, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we certainly had a run of movies we did together. But um, so, yeah, I think that video was like really the first time any big name person did something on the internet. Mm. Then it's sort of, yeah, that's what it's that whole fact. That fact, it spawned the whole sort of new genre. And, it's crazy. Now it's, yeah. now it's, everyone does it. Now yeah. it's like commonplace. I mean, you can find any actor you can think of has done a video at some point on the internet. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. That's yeah. A launch. yeah. Let's get back to um, what's going on now, Gary Sanchez, and sure. sort of what, you know, the, all the amazing sort of hits that you've had, you know, from the, the comedies and sort of some of the serious stuff, which, um, I presume uh, Will Ferrell wasn't involved with the sort of uh, heavy dramas. Uh, you know, some of them he, he? he is. Yeah, I mean, we started Gary Sanchez, what is it now, 11, 12 years ago? Yeah. And we were at that, uh, have you ever seen that old Whitley Court off of Hollywood Boulevard? It's actually, I think it's registered. Yes, I as a, It's these little white houses yes, in a I've courtyard. Seen them. Yes, I did. Are they registered now? I think they might be. And it's like people like Humphrey Bogart and stuff had offices there dare. back in the day. And so that was where we started. We had a really tiny little office. And it's like Raymond Chandler Square or something. Isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really cool place. I kind of yeah. miss it. And uh, and out of that, yeah, we've been ended up doing it 12 years. Obviously, we started in the beginning with just bread and butter comedy. We did um, the other guys came out of there. Eastbound and Down, a show with uh, Danny McBride and Jody Hill was one of our first things we had that we produced that did really well. Did a little uh, smaller comedy called The Goods that uh, uh, is still floating around. And we just kind of got our feet under us. 
and uh, it just kept going and going. So obviously we produce all the stuff that Will and I have done, and then we've produced stuff with Will, like the campaign, which I had the story idea for but didn't write and direct. And then we've just done tons of different shows. We've had Drunk Histories now going into its sixth season. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And uh, and then we just oh, had... Between the ferns? Uh, between two, actually, that's Funny between or Die, ferns. Between Two Ferns. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. 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 But that's obviously Funny or Die is kind of like connected to Gary Sanchez because it kind of came out of Gary Sanchez. Of the structure. No, it's very tricky. It's all cross, you know, pollinization with all that stuff. So, um, yeah. And then, you know, as the years have gone on, obviously we, we like all kinds of movies and TV. I, I'm not just a fan of comedy, although I love comedy. So you sort of produced the Anchorman one and two. Yeah, yeah two wrong. two came out of Sanchez. Actually, one didn't. That was our first movie. Oh, was it really? That was our oh. very first movie that I ever directed or co-wrote, and it was the first one I did with Will. And, God, what was that, like 2001, 2002? No, really? I think we did that. Isn't that crazy? Yes, it is. Okay. And uh, we had Judd Apatow as a producer, and believe it or not, David O. Russell is credited oh. as a producer on that movie. He's someone I met when I first came to Hollywood and uh, came to Los Angeles. And... Uh, so then, yeah, eventually Gary Sanchez came about and then we started producing our own stuff. And, you know, the funnest part of it is you get to champion, you know, champion these really unique talents and kind of the way Kosh is like with what you've done, you get to work with all kinds of different people and experience all these interesting characters. Like there's a guy named Tommy Workola from Norway, who's this really interesting writer, director with like an incredibly dark sense of humor. He's done these dead snow movies. And we did a movie called Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters. Oh, right. Yes, he turned Hansel and, about. Yes. Yeah, I turned Hansel and Gretel into like badass witch hunters, mm. kind of had a sense of humor to it and was really cool. And uh, so, yeah, it's just really fun. You get to meet all these people. There's a guy named Andrew Gerland that we did like a found, like the first found comedy movie. Like they always do found footage horror movies. Mm-hmm. We did a found footage comedy movie with him called The Virginity Hit. Hardly anyone saw it, but it's a really good movie. Oh, we should check that out. Yeah. And uh, and then now recently with uh, obviously the turn the world has taken, we've gone a little more dramatic with uh, the show Succession on HBO. And uh, Yeah, and- that's a major hit. Major piece of work. Is it? That did really well. That was yeah. exciting. And man, do I love that project. Mm. That's Jesse Armstrong. This now you directed the very first one of those. I did. Yeah, we're producers on it. And I directed the pilot, which was really enjoyable because mm. I got to help set the cast and mm. the look and feeling of it in collaboration with Jesse Armstrong, who's the writer, creator mm. of the show. And he's just one of the best writers out mm. there. I mean, what you, what you learn from producing for like 10, 12 years is like 80% of the battle is like get great writers. Mm-hmm. And, and you definitely need great directors and you definitely need great actors and you definitely need great yeah. music. But man, if you don't have that script to start with, you're in trouble. Okay. You just sort of hit the nail on the head. Music. Yeah. And how much, you know, how imp- obviously music is very important to you. Uh, but how, when you're sort of thinking about sort of scripts and writing, whatever else, are you actually starting to think of music and thinking, well, I need something here that fleshes it out? Uh, do I need rock and roll here or do I want some country or do I need. To- I mean, how do you go about the process? Well, the funny thing was the first scripts that I started working on, feature scripts, I would always put in exactly the song I wanted. Ah. So it's a major part of what I do. I mean, really, I look at one of the seminal moments in film history is in Mean Streets when uh, Scorsese has De Niro walk into that bar 
and they play Jumpin' Jack Flash yes, right. over him. And that's really the first time you see super cool music mixed with stylistic film. And you watch it, you can find the clip on YouTube, or I would recommend watch all of Mean Streets. And it's like a major moment. And I think all of us at that moment just went, oh my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And obviously Scorsese continued to do it for, you know, all the way till now. Yes. And all of people like myself who were, you know, what, maybe 15, 20 years younger than Scorsese, we kind of grew up in his shadow and all we wanted to do, all I was looking forward to was getting a hold of that camera and saying, over crank it to 90 yeah. frames per second or maybe 72 or maybe 48. Right. And I get to picture what song, I, I have a song in mind for this. So, I mean, if you look at Anchorman, there's songs just driving that entire movie. Uh, yes, exactly. And that's why I brought it up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's the one? Uh, Sunshine uh, by, oh God, what's the guy's name? Jonathan Edwards. Is that right? Uh, Sunshine, go yes, away yeah. today. That was like the whole sequence of kind of uh, Veronica Corningstone mm -hmm. taking over the news team from Ron Burgundy was built around that song. Mm -hmm. And we just had all those songs like, can you dig it? Uh, can you dig it? Can you dig it? I can, can dig, dig it. it. I can yes, dig right. it. You know, all those songs, like when Farrell and I were writing the script, we were constantly looking for music and building the movie around that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it comes from, even though we were doing a, you know, a, a fairly large uh, uh, cartoonish comedy, we all just grew up in Scorsese's shadow. And he was the guy who really kind of cracked that for us. And I was just dying to get like some nice looking footage and put music against great it. Great music to it. I could just spend months and months just doing that. Like I had this great music supervisor, Erica Weiss, and I would end up, the editor would have to come grab me and say, hey, you got to come back to the edit room because I was having so much fun putting music to picture <laughs> playback and yes. trying song after song after mm. song. Um, so yeah, it's always been a huge part. In Talladega Nights, we knew right from the very beginning that we were going to use, uh, we were going to drive that with like cool kind of country music, uh, but with kind of a kick behind it. And so we were constantly looking for music for that while we were writing the movie. And we really were wanted... you actually were you really look at that point where you're looking for the needle drop or you're actually sort of recomposing or you like... needle drop yeah and, and you know I was very lucky in that with my first couple movies I got to work with the great Hal Wilner who's the music supervisor for SNL and has also produced some great records like Lou Reed and Lucinda mm -hmm. Williams and so he has this amazing collection of records that like no one else has so he would be bringing me his records to kind of help with the temp score. And he would like, so when we did Anchorman, we weren't using like temp score from some other movie. We were using the real music that Ron Burgundy probably would have been listening to. And like these seventies horn tracks that like Hal would dig out of his crazy. Oh my God. Yes. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it's, and then, you know, the other thing was that Will comes from a music family as well. So his dad was a keyboard player, sax player for the Righteous Brothers. For Now that I did not know. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's and really cool. So he had kind of, he had a very similar upbringing to me. And his parents were divorced around the same age my parents were divorced. He had a father who was a musician who was like, his dad played in Vegas for like seven, eight years and played with the Righteous Brothers. His dad also played sax Bill with Bill Medley and, oh yeah. Oh yeah, and his yeah. dad played sax with uh, Dick Dale as Dick well Dale. Okay. back in the 60s. 
So he's a really musical guy, and Will's actually a pretty decent singer. And uh, he really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so he he was totally. I mean, I think one of the keys to our collaboration has always been music. Uh, that we both just love music and believe it should be a big part of whatever's going on. And uh, so, yeah, so the, we were very lucky. We had a, a perfect storm of like Hal Wilner being a friend of ours and Will being a big music fan, me being a big music fan, and uh, and all of it was just kind of integrated together. Hmm. That's pretty amazing. I didn't. I mean, I realize. I mean, I realize that looking back on on your careers and the movies, particularly, how important music was. But I didn't quite understand how the mesh was between uh, you, you and Will. And how, oh, so uh, from the yeah. conception of the yeah. script, we're already talking about. Yeah, that's music. Ama- that's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, that's yeah. pretty unusual. I would have thought. I mean, you know, I know some other because, you know, there are some other people that do it like that. I mean, when we worked with Danny McBride and Jody Hill, Jody Hill's the director, also good Mm -hmm. actor, but mainly the director. He also thinks about music like that. And I remember when he told me that I was like, oh, you do that, too. And Mm -hmm. so there are some people that do it. And then there are other directors who don't think about the music at all, Mm -hmm. like who just are screenwriters who don't ever think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. It's all dependent, but I know for me it was all just came from. So let's talk about Vice. Yeah. And one angle I want to pick pick up on Vice is I know you were recording the soundtrack at Abbey Road Studios in London. That is correct. And uh, that sort of thrilled me immediately because I just haven't been there for a long, long time. I have no idea what it looks like, but I'm assuming that Ringo's drum kit is still in the corner. And, 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 and the piano that Yoko used to sit under is still in that corner. Wow. Um, but anyway, the point is the music for Vice, which, you know, when's Vice being released, by the way? So, yeah, Vice is the next movie uh, that we just, I just left the edit room about a week ago after about eight, nine months in the edit room. Oh. One, of the, one of the more challenging movies we've had because uh, it's the story of Dick Cheney. Right who is a guy who in no way wants his story told. So it was a little bit like a... Oh, Christ. Oh, he... <laughs> you read his biography, his autobiography, and it's like a, a deposition. I mean, it's... <laughs> this is a guy who never has sought out the spotlight. So it had a bit of a detective novel feeling to it, the process of putting the movie together. There was definitely a mystery to it. Um, but we were really lucky. We have this great composer, Nicholas Bertel, who did uh, The Big Short with us as well, and he's a classically trained pianist who also was in a hip hop band. So he can do all these different sounds and oh, kind of styles. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we, we really love Nick and Nick on Vice. We brought him in before I'd even written the script. We started consulting with Nick and talking with Nick about the story and the style of the movie. And, uh, so it's an unusual collaboration in that once again, music is coming in before the script's even written in, in a way that's, I guess, kind of upping the game even from what we did with Anchorman. Now it's the composer uh-huh. is actually involved in the process and looking at rough drafts of the script and responding to it. Um, so, yeah, so he did this incredible kind of, I, you could almost call it like dark Copeland, uh, <laughs> this nice. twisted Americana score to it that's mm. really just stunning. And he's over at Abbey Road as we're sitting here right now. Oh, right now. It's yeah. right now and we're in Aftermaster. And, oh, my God. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And so I just got an email from our music editor, John Finkley, who sent me a picture of this reel-to-reel recorder at Abbey Road. And he said, this is what they recorded uh, Sergeant Pepper's on. And they're recording your score for your movie off of it now. Analog. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. It's probably a big old Ampex, you know, the sort of two inch. It was Ampex. Yeah. yeah, and he yeah, sent yeah. me a picture of it. Yes, and, my God. Uh, those guys are such <laughs> music geeks. Uh, that they go around like he says, absolutely, you're correct. That that piano is still there, the drum kit is still there. <laughs> he plays like songs on the piano that you know, famous Beatles songs, and you can hear the slight warp to the sound that sounds exactly like what's on the oh, album. Good lord, uh, it's pretty fun. Yeah, so they're constantly sending me videos from Abbey Road right now while they're recording and. Uh, they're in just hog heaven. I mean, I they're the bet, biggest Beatles yeah. fans you'll ever meet. And uh, yeah, they, they're dying to meet you. I told oh, them yeah, about you. I was yeah, like, you've got to meet Kosh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure they got a ton of stories. We've all got tons of stories, which is, you know, while you're, while you're sitting here is because you've got tons of stories, which I'm still trying to get out of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was, uh, I mean, I don't think we've ever done a movie like this. And, and talk about Full Circle, we really have almost no needle drops in the movie. It's mostly score. Ah, and okay. uh, I've never done that before. I love using needle drops. And my editor, my current editor, Hank Corwin, uh, who's an amazing, he did uh, JFK and Tree of Life. He's really an amazing editor. And uh, uh, Natural Born Killers. He loves using needle drops. And we just decided with this story, like, it's not a movie for needle drops. It you should compose, be score. Yeah. But Bertel's really interesting. He records his score a little bit like needle drops. I mean, there's a reason he's using analog to record it. He he likes to record it like they're recordings that you listen to just as music on their own. So even though it's score, it has a needle drop quality oh, to see. it. Right. Yeah. He did Moonlight. Um, and, you know, that famous piece from Moonlight almost plays as an individual piece of music, the one with the violin, yep. that yep. kind of the signature piece from the movie. And so that's kind of how Bertel approaches things. And it's uh, and then he's wildly collaborative, and he knows I love music, uh, even though I'm basically tone deaf. Oh, no, uh, don't, don't tell me that now. <laughs> uh, but I also love hip-hop. So when he and I are working on the movie, occasionally we'll be like, hey, do you want to take a little break and just make a rap track? Oh, God. And we'll That's take so a little break and we'll just sit down and record a rap track and I'll write some lyrics. He'll do a beat and we'll just do two takes. I mean, it's pretty sloppy, but throughout the couple of years that Nick and I have been working together, we've recorded like five or six hip hop tracks well, can, together. Can we get hold of them? Oh, absolutely. I'll send them to you. Yeah. Because we might need them for the outro here. You know, yeah, yeah. I'll send them to you. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple we did that aren't too embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> and then there are about three or four that there's no Very way I'm sending to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but Pearl from The Landlord makes an appearance on one. Oh, lovely. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. old is she now? Pearl is 13 years old. She's lovely. officially a uh, teenager. Yeah. Yeah. And she plays, right? She's. She's actually a very talented musician. Um, she plays violin. She's almost, she's got like near perfect pitch. She's really oh my great God, that's vocals. Scary. But she's in that age where she's like, there's no way I will ever sing in front of people. There's no way. It's too embarrassing uh, that my oldest daughter, Lily Rose, was in for years too. I will never sing in front of anyone. In front of anyone. And now Lily Rose is at Cal Arts as a music major and just recorded an EP with four songs on it that she wrote and uh, sings and plays all the time. So I'm waiting for Pearl to get over that hump. And uh, Yeah, yeah. So the music is swirling all around you. So, I mean, it's just... It really is. And my wife, Shira, who, gosh, you know very well, yeah. she's a heck of a musician. She's a fantastic piano player and guitar player and uh, 
Uh, one of our get-togethers that we do, we have to get her to pick up the guitar because she can really wail. Mm. Okay, now talking of playing guitars, um, Joe, guitar, doors. Yeah. Do want to tell you to tell us all about that and what it's all about. An amazing organization. It was um, started by Wayne Kramer and his wife, Margaret Kramer, who are mm-hmm. two of the coolest people I know. And Wayne, as you know, is uh, the guitar player for the MC5, founding member of the MC5. Uh, has played with everyone, was in a band with Johnny Thunders, is, does his own solo work that's incredible. Also composed for, uh, did the score for Eastbound and Down, the show that we did on HBO with Danny McBride. Um, and the way I got to meet Wayne was Wayne did guitar music for um, Talladega Nights with Tom Morello, and we just hit it off. He's uh, I'm, I'm very involved in politics. I obviously love music. Then uh, they became friends with Shira. So they've just become really close friends of ours. And what they do is they go into prisons, and their belief is that if you give someone a chance uh, to express themselves to find self-worth, to work, to improve, that they will change their lives. So they do that through music. And they take musical instruments to prisons around the country and bring them to inmates. And uh, while distributing these instruments, also do concerts at the prison. And um, they found recidivism rates drop precipitously when you bring in these musical instruments and that it does change these guys' lives and uh, just a chance to express themselves. That's all any of us want. Mm-hmm. And when you're not given that chance, you know you know what you end up doing? And I certainly did it when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. We threw tomatoes at cars yes, or right. we broke TP, windows yeah, on, right. you know, yeah. on abandoned houses. And we all just want to express ourselves. So, you know, and, and in a way you look at like punk rock music and you look at rock and roll and it, it's awfully close to breaking windows in abandoned <laughs> houses. And uh, uh, but music is much more constructive. So, yeah, it's an incredible organization. I'm honored to be on the board of it and to be involved and uh, just had an amazing uh, experience working with those guys on it. Well, that's pretty amazing because it was just uh, uh, I mean, how long has this been going on? God, Yale Guitar Doors has been around for what's about six, seven years here in the mm. States. They have a version of it in the UK. Uh, yeah, pretty cool organization. It's called Joel Guitar Doors, but it's not just guitars you take in there, is it? Oh, no, they take in all kinds of instruments. Yeah. And you know what's crazy? Do you know where the uh, title comes from? The organization was started originally in the UK by a political activist, singer-songwriter, who named it Jail Guitar Doors because he knew that as a B-side from a Clash single. Uh. And here's what's crazy. So he tells Wayne Kramer about it and goes, yeah, there's this song called Jail Guitar Doors. And Wayne goes, yeah, I know the song. It's about me. And the guy goes, you got to be kidding me. He goes, yeah, let me tell you about Wayne and his tales of cocaine. It's apparently one of the lyrics in it because Wayne Kramer, back in his uh, early days, got mixed up in some drugs and did a little bit of jail time. Mm. And the Clash wrote a song about him. Right. And meanwhile, this bloke, as you would say, in the UK, hears hears the song and goes, I'll name the organization about it uh, after it, and then contacts Wayne. So how crazy is that? Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. I didn't know that. Okay. What else do we? What else do we cover? Huh? Um, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's. It, I think it's really interesting. You know, you talk about the history of film and music, and you know, there's so many examples of movies that you know when they get that score wrong, it throws an entire yeah. movie off. 
And uh, and then when they get to score right, it can elevate. Oh, t- yeah, higher. totally. Yeah, you know, transposes, transfixes. What I'm st- stumbling here. Yeah, um, I mean, it's. I think music and film both operate in this hypnagogic kind of level, this subconscious level for us. And so we just had the experience. We have the show that um, we had talked about before called Succession for HBO. And I've never had this experience before, but our our composer Nick Bertel wrote a theme for it that's like becoming a hit song, like. People are actually like want to play it on the radio and there's like Mm. hip hop artists have contacted him and want to sample it. And and it was amazing to see how this music, his music for Succession became like as integral to the show as any of the main characters. Like Mm. it's when you think of that show, it's just such a huge thing. And so we're, we're really playing around with the idea right now of starting to like use music to inspire television shows, streaming shows, and movies. And so I'm kicking around the idea with Nick on our next project that Mm. maybe we don't have an idea. Maybe we start with the music Ah. and build the idea around the music. Because I was thinking way, way back when Apocalypse Now came out and I was suddenly stunned the way that... I mean, oh. that way the music was used from that, right? Huge. From, yeah. Uh, that was one of the pieces of times I think that I was like, thought, hmm... This is like very constructive and, you know, and underscored to the point. The score was not underscoring so much as overscoring it, li- lifting yeah. it up. Yeah. Um, and it was the Stones and it was Hendrix and, uh, and whatever oh, else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it, God, knows, God knows how much it cost. I mean, because music rights must well, be... Well, this is the end. I feel like yes, when I this hear is the this end, is the yeah. end now, yeah. I think of it's the Apocalypse <laughs> Now song. I mean... <laughs> The helicopter, yeah. oh, yes. absolutely. <laughs> By the way, that's a great point. That sound of the helicopters and the ceiling fan, fan. when you meet Martin Sheen in the yes. beginning. I mean, that's the coolest thing where you start seeing the blend with the music, the sound, mm-hmm. the picture. I mean, we're lucky enough on this movie, we're working with a sound mixer, uh, this guy, Chris Scarabasio, who's one of the best around. He's worked with Paul Thomas Anderson a lot. And when it really gets good is when you start seeing that sound design like almost play along mm. with the music, play along with the dialogue and that kind of blend. It starts getting into like almost every sense you have. I mean, all you're missing is uh, smell and smell Smelly vision, smelly vision. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think like our, our goals for the future are like to let music drive film even more than we already have. And uh, so we're, we're kicking around the idea of like just starting with a piece of music and letting that's it inspire. That's a really good way of, yeah, I mean, that's going to be fantastic. Just imagine how that's going to work. I, I I I will let you know when we start coming up with a track. Yeah, and uh, and then you know we had talked before about we we had a uh, living room at our house that we live in right now that was one of those living rooms that no one ever went into it. And as a kid, I used to hate that. I'd be like, why do you have a room that no one uses? This is crazy. So I decided to turn it into like a recording studio jam room. So we had a designer come in and then we had some audio techs come in and they put in speakers, they put in recording equipment, but it's all hidden behind cabinets. Oh. So it looks like a living room, but then you pop everything open and you can actually record in there. So Nick Bertel and I have recorded some tracks for some of the movies we've done in there but then most of all we do these big parties where we just oh these are the famous jam sessions which i was coming to yeah and these have been really cool we just invite musician friends we invite friends who there's one friend of ours who's a screenwriter who happens to be an amazing drummer studied drums at usc school of music 
And so he'll come by, Wayne Kramer comes by, uh, this other friend of mine, uh, Brett Chan, who's an incredible guitar player, studio musician in LA, he comes by, Shira jumps at, at the keyboard, Bertel shows up, and then we'll have sandwiches outside and people just be swimming in the pool, but then we'll just have music going all day long. Wow. And then I look for a lull point, uh, you know, a point where there's a lull in the talent level where it goes low enough that I could maybe sneak in oh, and play come something. On. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm pretty bad. But I love music, so I love being around it. And uh, and we'll improvise songs and just jam, and then sometimes it'll be a cover that everyone knows. And, uh, yeah, they'll go for like five, six hours and oh, uh, wow. are just a blast. Now, unfortunately, we've been working on this movie for, what, year and a half, almost two years, so we're, we're way overdue for one. But... Uh, hmm. Yeah, now that I'm out of the edit room, we're definitely going to schedule one. Yeah, I think you should. Yeah, you need to relax a bit now, I think. Oh, for sure. I need to talk about your Oscar, and I believe your crazy story that happened thereafter. Yeah, we made uh, we made the movie The Big Short. You know, we weren't thinking about any stuff like awards or any of that junk, and... Uh, and lo and behold, uh, the day after the Oscars, I woke up in bed with my wife, Shira, and just said, uh, I had an Oscar. I said, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> uh, no, we were very fortunate. I, uh, myself and uh, Charles Randolph uh, adapted uh, the book, The Big Short, and uh, we were lucky enough to uh, win a bunch of awards for it. But it was, uh, you know, the word surreal gets used way too much nowadays. In fact, I think we should stop using it until the real meaning of it comes back. But I'm going to use it. You just uh, say you just did. <laughs> yes, right. It was surreal. So, you, you, you know, they read your name off you're in that giant theater and you kind of stumble your way to the stage and you're looking at this clock that's immediately counting down when they're going to start playing you off the stage oh, God. and you have to thank and give love to everyone in your life in that moment and then of course i wanted to say something about the politics behind the banking crisis yes right so uh and you're, you're sweat on your forehead and your upper lip and you're looking at this clock counting you down but the really strange part was after that they usher you off stage and you're, I have no idea what's happening. And they start leading you through these hallways into different rooms. And like they, they're just like, oh, if you can come over here, it's the international press. And they open a door and it's like 130 press are there. And suddenly I'm on another stage and you're talking to them and they're asking you some questions. And then you leave, and then they go, oh, you have to have... And then you're going, once again, it's like this never-ending kind of matrix. Well, are you still clutching your Oscar? Oh, you're <laughs> holding your Oscar. You're in your sweaty tuxedo with Charles Randolph. And then you go to some other area, and then I just pass by, like, Margot Robbie and some other movie star looking like they're illustrated out of a cartoon. They're so perfect looking. And they're at a bar having drinks and Margot Robbie's like, hey, Adam, and like toast me. I'm like, what is going on? And then you go into another room and they're like, you have to have your portrait done. And there's a portrait photographer and then you're in there. And then there's another room where you walk in there and then suddenly there's another wall of press and they're they're talking to you and it's just you know how that wall of yes, photographers. Yes, and repeat. Yeah, yeah, one, yeah. Yelling stuff at you. Yeah. And then there's some other room where they're like, oh, go in here. And then they give you glasses of champagne. And all of a sudden I'm talking to like Morgan Freeman. <laughs> and I'm like, how am I talking to Morgan Freeman right now? So this goes on and on, these weird rooms and these winding hallways. And you're in this daze. And then finally, at the very end of it, they go, okay, you can go back to your seat. <laughs> so I walk around this hallway and you have to wait for the commercial break. Right. And I'm standing next to... 
the most like it's it, like your fairy godmother, but really beautiful and hot. And it's Kate uh, Kate Blanchett. Oh no! <laughs> in this gown. Looking like I'm having a dream, like looking like the most perfect human you've ever seen. Mm. And I just sit down next to Kate Blanchett and she's like, hello. And we just have this conversation and she's like, congratulations. And I'm like, what is going on? You're still holding your Oscar. <laughs> I'm holding the Oscar and I'm with Kate Blanchett, who's like, I, by the way, I, if I had to describe her for a police lineup, I'm sure I'm wrong. But she seems like she's 5'11" with porcelain skin just and in this gown that you can't believe and then eventually the person goes all right commercial uh commercial break get back to your seat and i go back to my seat now it's been like 35 minutes since they announced and i sit next to my wife shira and she's like where were you i'm like i don't even know how to describe it (laughs) (laughs) oh no and the last thing that happens this is what happens so i come out of the hallway from cape blanchette and I'm walking past the stage, and Chris Rock is hosting the Oscars. And as I'm going back to my chair, he goes, Adam McKay, director of Step Brothers, has an Oscar. <laughs> and then I sit down in my chair. Oh, lovely. It was a good impersonation, by the way. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's roughly. I've known Chris for a long time. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. But he goes, yeah, Adam McKay, director of Step Brothers, has an Oscar. And I was like, <laughs> and then I just, woof, sat in my chair next to Shira. And she's like, where have you been? I'm like, I don't even know what just happened. No, yeah. you didn't even get to the, it's the bathroom, I bet. No, <laughs> no I actually I think you're correct. I don't think I got a bathroom break on that. Yeah, yeah I know. Because when I did the Grammy thing, I was like, you know, for God's sake, I've got to find a bathroom. It's cra- it was crazy. Yeah, and I've never, you know, I directed movies like uh, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, Anchorman. I never thought I'd be at any of those award shows. We used to joke about how one of the great things about doing comedies is you don't have to show up for award oh, shows. Oh, got it. Yeah, yeah we, we were fine with it. We weren't looking for any of that stuff. And uh, But yeah, with the big short, we had to do, do the, yeah. the full junket. I mean, we did the BAFTAs, we did WGA, yeah. DGA, the SAG Awards, the PGAs, like anything you can think of. How were the BAFTAs? BAFTAs were one of the cooler ones, too, because mm. it's in that crazy hall that, um, which one is Was it? Is it the Royal Albert? I think no, it is the yes, Royal Albert. Yeah. I, I, it's one of the craziest plays. Once again, it's a daze because we finished the WGA Awards. We won, uh, Charles Randolph and I were lucky enough to win for Best uh, Adapted Screenplay. And they had to usher us out the backstage because we were in Los Angeles and take us into a car and drive us immediately to the airport to fly to London. So we're in our tuxedos holding the WGA Award. And we're in a car and we then jump on an international flight. I pass out on the plane, like go to sleep in my tuxedo. I'm with Shira. We land, they hustle us to the hotel. They go, you have an hour. So I have an hour to like shower, oh, time get shift. dressed, oh my God, yes. and then they usher us to the BAFTAs. And once again, very similar thing where you're in this kind of fantastic storybook hall. You don't know what's going on. You're seeing people everywhere that you can't believe you're seeing. And then they say your name and you basically see red at that point and don't remember the next 20 minutes. And uh, Your tuxedo must be looking a little crumpled by now. I think, I actually think we had to throw out a tuxedo. I think I actually wrecked a tuxedo from sweating and being crumpled. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's funny with filmmaking. It's obviously such a, like music, such a collaborative effort. Yeah. So it's a little strange to be recognized as an individual for something that's so legendarily collaborative. Mm-hmm. But it was a hoot. That's kind of what I just say. I go, well, that was a hoot. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. Okay. 
I've always wanted to go to the BAFTA Awards because it's a jolly British thing. Oh, you know, so man. Sort of if we, and, and this is a giant if, in fact, it's not going to happen, but on this new movie, Vice, if we go, you got to come with us. Yeah, absolutely. If, I, if they gave me tickets, which I bet you I can at least get two, you and Susan have to come with oh, us. Oh, boy, that'd be fantastic. You have to. Yes. All right, that's a deal right now. Okay, that's got happening. it, got it. And it's on the air now, so it's like... I love it. <laughs> well, Cash, thank you for having me no, on, No, no, man. no, thank you for coming. I really do appreciate sort of taking the time. I know all the hard work you've gone through and the fact that, you know, you really need to get some sleep. I do. So I do appreciate you coming by, and I'll do a wonderful outro for you. I love it. Thank you, Cash. <laughs> thank right, you mate. so much. I love you, man. Always a joy. Always a joy. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm not hearing it right. Hold on. We got it now. It's all right. Little ham and eggs coming at you. Hold on, people. Hope you got your griddles. That's baby making music, that's what that is. You have been listening to Adam McKay, comedian, writer, actor, director, producer, and one really old-time great bloke, a gentleman who has just picked up six Golden Globe nominations for his latest picture, Vice, which is being released today at Christmas 2018. Go out and see this incredible film. OK, I am online at koshdesign.blogspot.com and you can find me on Facebook at koshart. So, from the couch... And after Master Studios in Hollywood, I hope you all had a happy Christmas, enjoyed our little audio present, and please have a happy new year. And this has been an Art of Rock production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. See you next time. Cheers. the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Art of Rock is written by Tosh and produced by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks.
All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.